one of the most helpful questions that we can ask when studying the Bible is a simple question, so what? In other words, what does God want me to do with this? So what? You read a passage of Scripture, sometimes there's commands that's easy to respond to because the New Testament, especially the epistles, tell you exactly what God wants you to do. But there are other passages, stories, narratives, descriptions, and we need to ask ourselves, so what? If you read your Bible first thing in the morning, you can ask yourself, so what? What does this passage tell me to do at work today? on my commute, as I mow the lawn, as I relax, as I interact with clients or individuals, family, friends. So what? Because as believers, we know that God doesn't want us to read His Word merely for the sake of reading His Word. He is in no way a God of checklists where we can just check something off. It doesn't impact us, and, but He says, it's okay, you checked it off. That's not the Christian life. He also doesn't want you to learn from His Word merely for the sake of learning something new. He wants you to learn so that you can respond to it. What have I learned about His character? How can I actively and practically change my life, repent of sin, pursue obedience? So what? And that question, so what, is especially important, as I mentioned earlier, in sections in which there's a lot of theology, but maybe not a lot of practical commands. And this is exactly where we have found ourselves over the past several months in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we've unpacked the reality of bodily resurrection for the saints. We've learned much about the resurrection. We've learned much about Christ's resurrection. We've learned much about eternity and how we will live here in a new earth and not in heaven, and we will have redeemed, glorified, sinless, resurrected bodies. We understand that that's all future. And so we have to ask the question, so what? What do we do with it, with that information, all of that theology, all of that knowledge, what do we do with it today? Well, we've come to a morning where some of you thought would never come. We are on the last verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in part 17 of a series called Resurrection Reality. And rest assured, I have teased myself about the fact that we are in part 17 of a series. But if you would join me in this final verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 where we get to the so what. And before we get to our actual outline for this morning, I want you to notice that this verse begins with the word therefore. Therefore tells us he's about to give us the so what. Therefore connects us to the previous passage, but reaches back all the way to verse 1 of chapter 15. So what Paul is saying is as a result of all the wonderful truths regarding the resurrection body and eternal life, this is what I want you to do. In other words, out of the doctrinal emerges the practical, as it always should. Because the right teaching, we must respond with right living. It is not just about head knowledge. So what? 
Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection as we have seen. So what do we do about that? Christ as the first fruits means our resurrection bodies will be like His. So what? Resurrection means death has been conquered. So what do we do? The resurrection body will live forever because there is no sin in it. How do we respond to that today? And so this morning in this one verse, I want to give you five responses. Five responses to the promise of eternity. Five responses to the promise to the Christian of eternal life, which we understand is in a sinless, physical resurrection body. Five responses to the promises of eternity. Let me read for you verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The first response to the promise of identity this morning is in the beginning of verse 58 in the phrase, My beloved brethren. My beloved brethren. And that is embrace your identity. Embrace your identity. He calls the Corinthians, My beloved brethren. Despite all of the heartache they have caused him, despite all the theological wavering and discord which we have seen, makes up the bulk of 1 Corinthians. He's responding to their questions. He's responding to their errant beliefs. They're being swayed by false teachers, going against his own, Paul's own teaching of them, his discipleship of them, even questioning his authority by doing so. Despite all of that, he loves them. He loves them not just because they are Christians, He loves them because He is. And that is so important for us. We love others not because of what they are, what they have done for us. We love them because of who we are. We love them because of what Christ has done for us. And the point that I want to bring out is that they are ultimately beloved of God. Now whether that's what Paul means when he uses the word beloved or if he means that God loves them, or he loves them, or both. We know that by referring to them as brethren, brothers, spiritual siblings, they are Christians, and Christians are loved by God. This is going to be the basis of everything we talk about this morning. This is going to be the basis of everything in the Christian life. Embrace your identity. Because if you do not recognize on more than a mere intellectual level that you belong to the Lord, then you will have zero motivation for the Christian life. If it's just a fact that you've memorized. You see, you'll have plenty of motivation to act like a Christian. But you won't have the proper motivation for the right heart. And that's what God desires. The right heart. You see what I'm talking about? You can come to church. You can be around Christians. People know you're a Christian. And so you say, well, I'm a Christian. And so I need to behave a certain way to fit in here. And I need to behave a certain way to fulfill the expectations of my unbelieving friends. But if it's not from the heart, it is a thing we call legalism. And if you're not familiar with the phrase legalism, 
It is the reason that Jesus Christ condemns over and over again in his teaching and to their faces the legalistic Pharisees. So what's the difference? People ask me all the time, how do I do things not just because I was taught, not just because there's a peer pressure, not just because there's an accountability group that I need to talk to on Saturday morning. How do I do this out of the heart? And the first step is embrace your identity. Truly meditate on the fact that God loves you. He sent His Son to die for you. Can you imagine the gratitude and constant sense of allegiance to someone or the family of someone who sacrificed his life for you. I and probably you have seen news stories of someone who is alive because of an organ they received from an organ donor. And say so they go and they find the family of that organ donor with tears on both sides. I've seen people who have met the individual, the recipient, and their son, their deceased son's heart is now pumping in that individual's body. They say, can I listen to my son's heart beating? There is an intimacy there. There's a gratitude there. Reaching out, thanking, building bonds with even just any living relative of the deceased whose organ is now keeping the recipient alive. This is the type of intimacy and affection and gratitude we are to have for Jesus Christ. We need to understand how much God loves us that He sent, then killed His Son for us. Listen. We have to get beyond Christianity being something that you are merely a part of, like a club or a family tradition. It is the essence of who you are. It is a relationship, not with me, not with each other, not with this church, not with like-minded churches. It is a relationship with your God, your Creator a relationship that you could never have on your own. So Christ paid for it Himself. These days, how often? How often we as Bible-believing Christians just dumb down our faith to finding a good church. We're saying Christianity is just about hearing expository preaching listening to podcasts, reposting Christian memes. We've lost the love and adoration and frankly the humility before our God of true saving faith because we have turned our faith into an argument on the one hand or a pillow to rest on on the other rather than an undeserved but necessary relationship that demands active response. It should absolutely blow your mind and thrill you to no end when you think of the simple fact that God loves you. Let me complicate it just a little bit more, but keeping it very simple. Holy God loves sinful you. 
And because He loves you, you should have no greater desire in life than to respond to that love and all that that involves. And what it involves in our context today is the promise of eternal life. So embrace your identity. Because before you are anything else, whether that anything else involves your ethnicity, your nationality, your profession, your family role, before any of those things, you are a Christian, also known as beloved of God. And until you embrace that, absolutely nothing we are called to do in the Scriptures will actually light a fire under you. Oh, you'll fight for the safety of your children because you're a mom. You'll clock in early because you're a boss. You'll share your paycheck because you're a dad. You'll even fight for sound doctrine. But until you truly focus on the fact that you are a sinner saved by grace, you will not serve God fully or sacrificially the way you serve money, your children, or yourself. Embrace your identity as a beloved child of God. And with that as our groundwork and foundation, we move on to the rest of our responses to the promise of eternity. The second being, stand your ground. Stand your ground. He goes on and says, we are to be steadfast. We are to be immovable. Again, the majority of what we've learned in 1 Corinthians is due to Paul responding to the Corinthians diverging from the gospel truths that they have learned. And as such, we understand why he now calls them to stand firm, stop wavering, stop being swayed by the pressures of the world and the cults around you, your old religion, your family members, these false teachers, even the Jews. This is reminiscent of how he began his teaching on the resurrection back in in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, which, remember, then segues into the gospel in verses 3 and 4. Verses 1 and 2, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he finishes off with these two words, steadfast and immovable in verse 58. Steadfast. In the Greek, it is stressing the character of steadfastness. More than just a one-time or even a multiple-time event, it is speaking of a character we are to have. Constant, always. This is who we are to be. The word steadfast literally means sitting or being seated, which gives us the picture of being fixed in place, settled, firmly situated as you are now. However, even as you are seated there in these chairs, you are moving. You're leaning over. You're grabbing things. You're bumping your spouse or your friend. Which, by the way, as a side note, and this is one of those things where if you're not thinking about it, you're probably going to think about it now. Having sat where you have sat for the last two weeks as we've had faithful guest speakers come, I do realize finally how uncomfortable those chairs are that you are sitting in. So I have great respect and appreciation that you sit in those stone slabs week after week. So thank you for your commitment to the Lord and His Word in 
a small wave. But my point in that you can still move is that immovable, the second word, has the same idea but with greater intensity. It means absolutely, completely immovable. And what Paul is doing is he's using both of these words to refer to our faith in the gospel. When he says be steadfast, immovable, he is talking about our faith in the gospel. Don't shift from the truth of the gospel as well as your hope in it. This would include believing in a confused or roundabout way rather than the simplicity of the facts of the gospel that are so straightforward as you can read again in verses 3 and 4. To put it another way, to be steadfast, to be immovable, is talking about, again, not just intellectual knowledge or understanding, it is talking about inner convictions. He's saying this is what you need to stand firm on, what you truly are convicted about regarding the gospel, what you read about in the Scriptures. To be steadfast and immovable is to so trust God and His Word that no false teaching, no peer pressure, no cultural norm, and no temptation can cause you to waver in any degree or to any degree. And this is all in regard to belief. Practically, this also speaks of not being swayed from the will of God in your obedience, how you live out those inner convictions. And this should go without saying, because belief and practical outward behavior go hand in hand. James, in fact, as you know, tells us that faith without works is a dead faith. And true faith is shown by works. Look at the beginning of this phrase. He says, be steadfast, immovable. That simple word be is in grammar in the Greek that calls us to continuous action. He means constantly be steadfast, always be immovable. It is a characterization. It's an underlying attitude. It is a state of existence and being. In other words, we are not to capitulate in any circumstance. Not at work with unbelievers, not at church with believers. And so this is not, of course, just during church or within your immediate Christian family. We need to stand firm on the truth of Scripture, even in the midst of unbelieving family, even in the midst of old friends, even in the midst of theologically differing acquaintances. Stand firm. I'm reminded of Ephesians 4.14. Paul says we are no longer to be children, spiritual children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Same idea there of what the Corinthians were dealing with. But it seems these days we don't even need the trickery or craftiness of men. Just peer pressure, social movements, cultural norms. And so my question for you at this point in the sermon is what makes you waver? What makes you say, I have this conviction that is purely based on Scripture, but now you're wavering a little bit? Is it the eloquence of a speaker? 
Is it even the extra-biblical convictions of your favorite otherwise theologically sound pastor? Maybe it's the fear of man. Maybe it's family pressure. Maybe it's just your own pride and stubbornness that makes you just want to be right and different. Maybe it's simply the excitement of something new. And Paul is saying, stop it. Be absolutely fixed in your convictions regarding the gospel, regarding the clarity of God's word. We need to be careful. We need to be careful. Because I don't think, I, actually I know, there are no true Christians who will say, I no longer believe Jesus Christ is Lord. You won't outright ditch the gospel, but you might waver on your convictions of other things, other doctrines, other theologies that are from the Scriptures. Obviously, I'm not talking about a wayward view and someone fixes it according to the Scriptures. I'm talking about when we have convictions on the gospel and someone else says, you know, no, 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 that's outdated. That doesn't happen. You know, the Supreme Court says, you know, the CDC says, you know, love is love. Say, well, yeah, God is love. Why would He not like those people? And so we waver. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Be careful. Response number three to the promise of eternity, fulfill your calling. Fulfill your calling. So in an understanding that you are saved, who you are in Christ, how God the Father views you, we are to start with being immovable in our faith and our understanding of the truth. And now, because of what's inside comes the outside, fulfill your calling. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. There are three keys here in responding to the promise of eternity. Always abounding work of the Lord. Always. All the time. Never stopping. Never ceasing. Not just on Sundays. Not just when it's convenient. Not just when others are watching. Always. When you're young and when you're old. Always. When you're filled with joy. When you're in the midst of a trial. Always. When there are others to help you, when you have to carry the burden alone. Always. When you have already accomplished much and when you have yet to do a thing. Always. Abounding, number two. This is the idea of overflowing, overdoing, going above and beyond what is required. Obviously, this is not marked by laziness and comfort, but diligence and effort. And the reality that Paul is connecting us to is that if Christ is not risen and eternity does not await us, then this is not only useless, this is impossible. But since both resurrections, Christ and ours, are true, then we have God's power. We have God's command. And we have God's grace. And finally, what are we to always abound in? The work of the Lord. To be sure this is anything commanded in Scripture, 
But again, the call to abound, overdo it, tells us that we are to pursue and practice anything that builds up the church. Understand this goes way beyond, way beyond just ensuring your own spiritual health and walk, which is very important. And this goes way beyond just ministering to your spouse and your children. This is about the work of the Lord, the work of the Lord. This is gospel ministry. This is church ministry. This is others, others. This must be our priority. And another warning, we need to be careful, especially these days, that we distinguish the difference between God-ordained church work and humanitarian social service, much of which the Lord and the gospel are absolutely unconcerned with. Do not sacrifice the people sitting around you for the underprivileged in the world. And I know that rattles you a little bit. We are to serve them, but not to the detriment of our first priority, which is the church. The second priority is the world in evangelism. Feeding is good. Clothing is good. Housing is good, but not when you risk your chances to evangelize. God, others in the church, others in the world for the sake of evangelism. That is the order according to Scripture. What good does it do a homeless man to feed him for a day, a week, a year, if all you're doing is delaying him going to hell. Do those things so that you can share the gospel. Do those things for an opportunity for the gospel. I get it. It's easier. It's easier to drop a coin, buy a sandwich, write a check, send in something on a website than it is to go out and do church work because that takes more. That takes us sacrificing our time, our energy, perhaps even our health. But we need to get past the idea that, I, oh, I donated and so that's my church ministry. No, always abounding in the work of the Lord. When we talk about work of the Lord, we shouldn't look at the Bible like we do some sort of training manual at our jobs. We don't know the person who wrote it. It's just for the sake of keeping things in order. It's just part of this larger entity. No. This is the work that God has specifically called you as an individual to. He has instituted this work. And it belongs to Him personally. The nature of this work then is spiritual, which of course fleshes out in the practical. But when we focus on the practical only, Again, we miss the whole point, which is the spiritual, the heart. And we know from 1 Peter 4.10 that all believers have been given a spiritual gift that is to be used for the building up of the church. And the call to do this kind of work to this degree is for all believers. Notice, God does not say always abounding in work. 
He says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I mentioned earlier that we think that Christianity is just finding a solid church these days. That's not Christian life. That's Christian death. Find a solid church, absolutely. But not just so you hear the word accurately preached, but so that you take that word and you live it out. You be a Christian. Friends, what are you doing with your life? What are you doing with your Christian life, your blood-bought, redeemed life? You're just sitting there doing everything the world does? Wasting your time watching TV as soon as you get home? Hanging out with other Christians just to have fun? Spending all your time and energy helicoptering your kids? Amassing wealth that will one day burn to buy things that will one day burn? Or are you always, always abounding in the work of the Lord? Fulfilling your calling, fulfilling your ministry, make your life count for God. Respond to the Word. And when you do, and when you do, know that your toil is not in vain. Response number four, appreciate your effort. Appreciate your effort. He says, knowing that your toil is not in vain. The word toil gives us more insight into what this work that we are to abound in, this work of the Lord entails. It refers to effort or labor. Labor is how the NIV and ESV translate it. This is not just any work, but labor that involves great exertion. It is supposed to be hard. It is supposed to be tiring. And this is very important. It's not that the task at hand is in and and of itself hard and tiring, like manual labor, for example. The idea is that you are doing so much of it that once one ministry is done, you abound and do more, and you seek more for the building up of the church, that you exert so much, you go so far above and beyond that you exhaust yourself. If you are willing to get to that point of exhaustion for your health in the gym, your hobby, your paycheck, then you should be even more willing to do it for the Lord. And we see the connection to what we've seen thus far. If you want to abound in the work of the Lord, then this kind of toil, this kind of labor, this kind of exertion are absolutely necessary. And so what Paul is calling us to is the whole gamut, the whole process. The devotion to the work in our hearts and minds, the actual doing of the work, the energy spent while working, and the fatigue resulting from it. Let me put it this way. If generally speaking, on any moment during the week when you're awake, if you're tired, that makes you human. If you're tired because of ministry, now that's Christian. That's God-honoring. That's redemption. And friends, I want to be very clear 
especially in light of our visitors from the last two weeks. Paul is not just talking about missionaries and pastors here, abounding in the work of the Lord to the point of exhaustion. We're not talking about just elders. We're not just talking about a few dedicated saints who happen to have the time. We're not talking about people who, in some of your minds, can spend the time because they already bought a house and already have children that are grown and already paid for college. We're not just talking about those people. What we're talking about here, abounding to the point of exhaustion in the toil and labor of the Lord, is supposed to be average, normal Christianity. You will not find anywhere in the New Testament that being a Christian is just going to church and then having Christian morals the rest of the time. It is work. It is sacrifice. It is energy. And here's the point. All of that work Energy, dedication, exhaustion is not in vain. It has eternal results. Even when it seems unproductive in the here and now, even if it doesn't have the results you like to see, it is not in vain, which means empty or lacking quality. Your toil is not in vain. Because you're doing it for the Lord. And that's the only reason. It's not because you're good at it. It's not because you're good. It's because your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The work of the Lord and the motivation for the Lord. And that brings us home to our final point. Remember your sovereign in the Lord. We've seen embrace your identity. Once you do that, you understand the importance of standing your ground. And once you stand your ground, you can fulfill your calling. As you fulfill your calling, you can appreciate your effort. And in all of this, number five, remember your sovereign in the Lord. In the Lord. When labor is connected to the Lord and done for Him, it is not in vain, no matter what it looks like here on earth. The reality is even if there are results, they are intangible. They are spiritual in nature and often the results are unseen. It's a changed mindset, for example, or seed planted that later bears fruit when you're away or long gone. But the point is that the Lord knows and the Lord sees and that should be enough for us. Bringing it again into the context of the resurrection, this is all true because we can say death has no victory and no sting. There is a resurrected Lord who receives the glory. There is an eternal home where we will receive our reward. He is coming. He is coming. You know that. The Lord is coming again. But do you remember what Revelation 22.12 says about His coming and what He's going to have tucked under His arm, so to speak. He says, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me 
to render to every man according to what he has done. I think it's quite plain to us what will receive reward and what will not. You know. You know in your day-to-day what you are doing for the Lord and what you're doing for yourself. I'm sure you've all experienced a hard day at work. Maybe it's just a normal day with extra work. Maybe you got yelled at by your boss, client. Maybe it was a fine day and then traffic was just horrendous. You come home, you need a break. It's understandable. You need just a little bit of downtime. You need to just talk with your spouse, snuggle your kids, whatever it is. You need something tangible because it's hard. And frankly, it is sometimes hopeless. And it's hopeless because you know, you know as a believer that you are doing it for things that are ultimately vanity. Money. Comfort. A house. Vanity. Vanity. Blessings from from God, yes, but ultimately vanity. But not so with the Lord. There are days in doing the Lord's work that just like with your secular job, you will come home. Maybe it'll be this afternoon. Say, I just need a break. That was a rough conversation. He said he was encouraged, but it it was rough. You need a break. You need a rest. That's okay. That's what I'm saying. It's exhausting. But the difference is it's not in vain. It is full of hope. You won't come home defeated and hopeless. You won't come home going, I don't want to go back to that job. You will come home full of joy. And instead of praying for help with your boss or your commute or your coworkers, instead of praying for comfort in the midst of a difficult work situation, you will drop to your knees and praise and thank God because you will experience the joy of obedience, the joy of service. This happened to many of you. can't tell you how many times this has happened to me. Busy. Busy doing ministry. It's my job. It's my passion. Hosting missionary families back-to-back this past week, for example. Showing them around, ministering to them, focusing on them don't want to take a break because I want to give them my full attention. It's bittersweet when they leave because their friends or for the, the couple last week are now friends. And we don't want to see them leave, but at the same time, I need to get back to work. And so I can finally put in a full day of work, of studying, meetings, whatever it is. And then finally, finally, just as with you, finally, it's dinner time. I can sit with my family, I can relax, I can enjoy a good meal. Nope. 
I just got to scarf down dinner sometimes because I got a class that's about to start. Look at the time, boys. They're probably on their car on the way here. And then after class, sometimes there's another meeting. I'm not asking for sympathy. It's the nature of ministry. You guys can't meet except that night. I'm tired. And sometimes I don't know how I'm going to get through that meeting. There's sometimes I want to cancel for your sake because I'm so tired, I don't know if I can give you good counsel. There are times where I flat out just don't want to go. But once I'm there and the meeting's over, I don't want it to end. It's gotten to the point where no matter how tired I am, I know I'm going to catch my second wind in the middle of that meeting because it's ministry. There is no way that would be the case if I was just doing it to earn a buck. No way. But it's ministry. It's God's Word. It's not me. It's the Holy Spirit. He comes and He helps and He brings fellowship. And I don't want it to end. Some of you can testify to that. You need to get home to your kids. I keep talking. just want to hang out. Hour and a half ago, I didn't even want to be there. And you know what I think it is? It's what we're looking at this morning. Because though my sin gets into it, understand that. That's a reality. Ultimately, what I was doing was not for money. It wasn't for my reputation. It wasn't for any other sinful or selfish motive. It was for the Lord. It was for others. I'm fully cognizant of the truth that they too made it to the meeting and are sacrificing to be there. Because there's hope and there's joy in doing things for the Lord. Your toil in the Lord is not in vain and that is going to impact your demeanor, your joy. And then when you die, it doesn't end because it impacts your eternal reward. I get it. You have to work. You have to eat. You have to pay $400 for a tank of gasoline these days. I get it, right? Or $500 for the electricity for your electric car. But what is our focus? That's the challenge, right? I mean, I don't think you would ever take one of your children, even if they were teenagers, even if they were in college, and say, you know what? I'm going to expose you, strap you down to this chair, give you an hour for lunch, and I'm going to expose you eight hours a day to rated R movies. See how that works out. 40 hours a week. You can take the weekend off. 40 hours a week, we are at our daily grind, most of us surrounded by unbelievers, the pressures of unbelievers, unbelievers that believe things that the Bible is against, things that we feel like we need to defend, we need to talk about, and you should, to pursue what? To pursue things of the world. And so you have that pressure on you 
eight, nine, ten hours, day after day after day. And then some of you go to night classes where your liberal professors just pound more of that into your heads. This makes what we're talking about all the more important. Stand firm, be immovable, abound in the work of the Lord so that you can fill whatever time you have left in this life, but on the smaller scale, in your week, in your schedule, with the things of the Lord so you can be filled with that hope and filled with that joy rather than just saying, quiet kids, I can't believe I have to go and do this again tomorrow. I get it. It's hard. It's brutal. And for some of you, it is downright nasty and sinful, not on your part, on your coworkers' parts. It's gross. And we have police officers here. I don't even want to think about what they have to deal with on a daily basis. District attorneys, the kind of evidence they have to look through, absolutely bone-chilling. I get it. But the key is right here. And the key is never Never allowing the world to make you believe that that is all you are here for. To go through the daily grind and provide for your kids and be a good dad, be a good mom, be a good spouse, be a good single person, pay your bills on time, good Christian, no debt, no one's banging on the door. It's more than that. It's more than that. And if here's a way to tell if for you, you're not practically making it more than that, no joy. No joy. I mean, look, I know I sound like one of those pastors, but truly, honestly, from what I have experienced based on what the Bible has said, what other people have told me, you're missing out. You're missing out when you don't give financially to the church and to missionaries. Man, the joy is unbelievable. It's way beyond whatever happiness you'll get from that new gadget. I guarantee it. It is an experience that unbelievers cannot have. It is true biblical joy. And service, to go out and serve, to pray, some of you get a taste of that when the first time you actually prayed for someone else than just your immediate personal circumstances. Like, wow. That's what it means to be selfless. The joy of service. The joy of sacrifice. I'm just grie- I'm grieved. I'm grieved. It's not just a matter of, oh, I need to talk to that person. I am grieved when I hear what's going on in some of these couples' lives, oh, yeah, yeah, we want to buy a house. So work, 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 work. I know I can't change anything, but you have to understand, this is not why we're here. Back in Genesis 1, this is not why we were created. And when that all fell apart, that's not why Christ came to redeem us so that we can just focus on the world and focused on our silos of grain and money as the Gospels tell us. 
It's for others. It's for others. And we go back to the very first word of our verse, therefore. If you truly believe that Christ was raised from the dead, you believe that you too will one day be raised from the dead. And if you truly believe that you will one day be raised from the dead like Christ, then you believe you will be raised in sinless form. And if you believe you will be raised in sinless form, then you believe you will live for eternity. And as a believer, since you believe all of these wonderful truths, therefore, embrace your identity, stand your ground, fulfill your calling, appreciate your effort, and remember your sovereign. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your clear command and thank you so much for the clarity of what you wanted us to do in response to our eternity. I pray that you would help each and every one of us who may have our priorities misaligned, that you would help us to do what you have called us to do. If there is a love of money, if there is a love of money that we have somehow twisted Scripture to justify, saying that it makes us a good husband or good dad or whatever it may be, help us to repent. Help us to see the truth. Help us to be faithful at our jobs and apply these things at our jobs. Help us to do the work of the ministry, to serve you by serving one another. Thank you, Father. Thank you that there are solid churches that still exist even in a place as dark and liberal as this. But guard us from just coming and that being the be-all and end-all of our faith. Help us to get to know people, to get involved, to serve through prayer, serve in our hearts, serve with our hands, serve with our feet, serve with our money, our time. Thank you, Lord, that as we do that, we know that despite what the practical responses may be, that we are reaping, amassing reward in heaven, that we are glorifying you, that no matter what happens, our toil is not in vain. Use us, Lord, to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.